Good morning, everyone. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Today we'll be concluding our series in the uh, book of uh, 2 Corinthians, and we'll be looking at the uh, entire final chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you today, um, there should be a Black Pew Bible either in front of you or somewhere near you. Uh, if you're using that Bible, you will find today's passage on page 970. Once again, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are, for we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do, or do you not realize this is about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test, I hope you will find that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and the peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all God's people said. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together to, to pray, to sing songs of praise, to honor and worship you and to hear your word proclaimed. We're reminded by these words we have just read to examine ourselves, to evaluate our relationship with Christ and, and uh, to examine where we are in the faith as we have an unbelieving world that is, that is watching us. And we need to bring glory and honor to you. And we pray that you give us the strength to persevere. We now pray for our brother Chad as he comes to preach that you would fill him with your spirit, that you would direct him to deliver the exact words that you would have him to speak. And I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to receive those words, to change us, to challenge us, to be more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love the time of a... Uh the life of a church when we add people to the body. 
And as an, an elder, I enjoy sitting down to hear your stories of how the Lord is working in and through your lives. And uh, if you guys do not know uh, Jason and Sarah Vados, have not heard their story, if you've not talked to David Brand and heard his story, I encourage you to sit down and talk to him and hear what God is doing in and through their lives. But one of the things I'm constantly amazed in doing those uh, membership interviews is how many people, hold on a second, I'm shorter than Pastor Toby. Let me move that to the side. One of the things that I'm constantly amazed when I do membership interviews is how few people can actually articulate the gospel. And when asked um, how they know for sure that they are a child of God, go just basically to objective facts of God's word, which are important. But rarely do they go to the point of showing exactly how that gospel, how that objective truth has made a difference in their lives. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." And I probably shouldn't be surprised also because John wrote 1 John to believers. He says in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I think it's fitting at this time of year, at the end of this calendar year, at the end of this series in the book of 2 Corinthians, a book that has dealt a lot with weakness, a lot with weakness in the physical flesh, but also certainly a lot of weakness in the church. It's, this text today will challenge us to evaluate, to examine, to test ourselves concerning our place in Christ's body. Lest we think we are truly a Christian and find out in that day that we aren't. So we ask this question today, are you a Christian? Am I a Christian? Verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 13 is a good kind of summary to this final chapter. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So I, I ask you a couple other questions this morning. How would you answer these questions if I were to ask them of you? Do you know for sure that you're going to be with God in heaven one day? Those of you who've studied evangelism explosion will recognize these as the two diagnostic questions. Second question, if God were to ask you why he should let you into heaven, what would you say? You know, many people go to the facts God says, if I confess my sins, he is faithful to forgive my sins and cleanse me all from righteousness. Good. I'm glad you believe that. But the New Testament tells us to answer that question in a, start, a strikingly different way, doesn't it? In fact, if you go to Paul's letters, the beginning of his letters, he expounds on the objective truths of the gospel. This is what the gospel is. That you were created by an almighty, sovereign God. But we rejected his rule in our lives, and you are broken and deserving of his wrath, his eternal wrath and judgment. But God stepped in by sending his son to live the life that you couldn't live, and as both fully God and fully man, he lived in perfect fellowship with me. And yet he died in your place, absorbing the wrath that you deserve in your place 
rose again, and now offers to you a gift of grace. Something you can't earn, something you can't buy, something you can't even give back to God enough to pay for it. But it's by faith. And then you're transformed and you walk by faith. And then the rest of his letters then goes on and shows how those truths are played out practically in your life. The differences that those truths make in your life. James would put it this way, faith without works is dead. That true faith results in works. Galatians 5, there's two options. You're either living according to the mindset on the flesh, bearing the deeds of the flesh, or you have a mindset on the spirit and you're bearing the fruit of the spirit. Two different ways, two options. So at this time of the year, we come back to these questions. Who are you in Christ? Does this past year give evidence that you are having a mind set on the Spirit? Does this past year give evidence that you are indeed an authentic Christian? On the flip side, is there anything in my life right now, ways I'm thinking, passions I'm pursuing, things I love doing more than God and worshiping Him that are inconsistent with authentic Christianity? Recognizing those things is not enough, however, is it? You must hate those things. And in this moment, as you evaluate, this is something I encourage people that come to my office all the time. They're, they're struggling with depression. They're struggling with anxiety. And as we begin to unpack and you see that they have, they have a world of guilt and shame that they're wrapped up in. And I encourage them, sit down every day and evaluate daily, not at the end of the year, and make a new resolution for the resolution for the new year. But every day, consider, am I in the faith? Is there anything in my life that would say otherwise? And to do so with joy because you want God to purify you. So at the end of this letter to Corinth, Paul presents this similar challenge. They've been challenging his apostleship. And he spins the focus around. He says there is a much important, more and more important matter to be resolved here. And that's whether or not you are in Christ, and whether you are in the faith. Examine and prove yourselves, or else I must prove my apostleship with the power of discipline, the authority of God. And as you look at the text, that was not Paul's desire, was to show that kind of authority, but to rather continue appearing weak as an apostle, but in fact see them being transformed and changed. Let's read verses 1 through 4 again here. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Paul begins here in verse 1 by, by reflecting back on Deuteronomy 19 to 15. He is not alone in giving an assessment to this church in Corinth. If you reflect back, you will know that Paul, and, Paul Timothy, and Titus all were witnesses of the state of this church. And according to Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 19.15, every charge against another person was to be established on account of two or three witnesses. This is the third time he was going to visit them. At their conception as a church, 
and confronted them. And now he was facing a third visit to them where he was either going to commend them as Christians and walking in repentance, or he would condemn them in the authority of the Lord in discipline. He warned them, and yet some continued to walk in unrepentance. And so here's a final warning in, in counsel of today's text that Paul could commend them as believers. That was his desire. Many had already responded to his first confrontation with repentance, but Paul longed for all to repent. And so in this text today, we will look at three things. First of all, Paul's final warning. We'll look at Paul's final counsel to this church. And third, and the best part, is Paul's final blessing to the church in Corinth here. And so as we consider Paul's final warning, counsel, and blessing, we need to ask ourselves two questions, have these tucked in the back of our minds as we go through this text today. What are two to three evidence or witnesses from my life from this past year that would prove that I am in the faith? And based upon that, how can I expect the power of God to be manifest in my life today and tomorrow? For it was a big idea for this text is authentic Christians or true Christians hear biblical warnings and follow biblical counsel by God's power. True Christians hear the biblical warnings. They follow biblical counsel by God's power. And so before Paul actually gets to his final warning, he spends a lot of time in verses 1 through 10 establishing once again that his authority came from God. He wants to make sure they hear that he is not speaking of his own accord. He is not seeking to build up his own reputation. He is doing this because this is what God has called him to do. So in verse 3, he says, um, let's see here, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. And in verse 10, for this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority. Coming from where? That the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. How does he describe his authority? He compares it in verse 4 to the authority that was given to Jesus. Here they are, they're seeking signs of his being an apostle with signs and wonders and miraculous things. And they're swayed to these, these super apostles of the day. And yet he reflects back to Christ and says, no, Christ was before you in weakness. He was not well looked upon by men. He was spit upon, he was beat, he was crucified. But in that very weakness, his greatest strength was seen, the power to be raised back from the dead. And Paul says, as just as Christ ministered in weakness, so my goal is not to look strong and charismatic and have a great personality, a great program, and great speech, and a great apologetic but that God's strength would be seen in me. That the very strength, the very power of Christ's resurrection would be seen in evidence through the ministry that I have given to you in his word. That you too might be raised from the dead. You sought evidence of my true apostleship. Here's the evidence. I have the authority of God to transform lives. As some of you know and see, those of you who have repented, you are evidence of my true apostleship. But those who are still unrepentant, if when I come, you're still unrepentant, what does he say? He says, verse 2, I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. 
You see, God has given me authority, but God has also given me a responsibility to hold you accountable. That you dare not think that I am a child of God and can walk in unrepentance. And in those, you will see my power, but it will be a power of church discipline, and it will look a lot different. Paul was not seeking to build his church. You know, some could say he wasn't afraid of what people say. Oh, look, Paul, all your disciples are walking away from the truth. Paul was concerned about building God's church. Paul didn't depend upon his personality, his talents, his programs, his amazing speech, trendy books and one-liners. No, Paul ministered the Word and the power of the Spirit and in human weakness. And the result was a powerful ministry that transformed lives. Had, had God shown his power to this church? He had. Think back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5, 3 through 5, Paul says, There is a man who is living in, in, in adultery amongst you. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present in the, in, with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. He was saying in 1 Corinthians 11, there are some of you who are partaking in communion in an unworthy fashion. And he said, because of that, the power of God is aware and is working in you, and this is how some of you are ill. Some of you have even died because you have not judged yourselves rightly. You have not examined yourselves. Paul would rather go on with the appearance of being weak, however, than to demonstrate this kind of power. But if necessary, verses 9 and 10, he would. Paul is less concerned to appear as a tried and true apostle than that the Corinthians proved to be tried and true Christians by resisting all evil. Look at verse 7. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we, though we may seem to have failed. So Paul's saying, look, I would rather you repent of your sins and I go on looking before you as a, a bumbling idiot than for me to come and to prove that I'm an apostle by demonstrating this strong discipline power. I am praying that you do no wrong. I am praying that you will pass the test that you are in the faith. And in so doing, what will happen is that it will actually make him pass the test as an apostle, that he is truly ministering the Word of God and the power of the Spirit, because as he ministers the Word and the power of the Spirit, what happens? Lives are transformed. People repent of their sins. So Paul is willing to maintain his usual weak presence among them. But he warns them. He says, listen to the word. Examine yourselves. Prove yourself that you may repent. His severe use of authority is not the goal of destroying them, but building them up. Not tearing them down, but strengthening them. You know, it's interesting sometimes when uh, in, in counseling or just working people, working with children particularly, right? You ask a child who you know has done something wrong, you come up to them and you say, uh, did you do this? And what's the response? No, that was so-and-so. They did it. And you start lighting you know, up the facts as to why this is the truth. I had one person, eh, undeniable evidence of the, what they had done, and you laid it out there and said, oh, no, that's just not what happened at all. Like, these two things, what you're saying and what I'm saying, both cannot be true, and yet they insisted on believing the lie. We don't like being pointed out in our sin, do we? Or, or should we? Should we? 
Christ said that those who are in the light walk in the light, go to the light, so that their deeds may be exposed. And so we come to this end of the year, and we come into this passage, and Paul is giving this final warning. It sounds severe, but in, the, in essence, it's really very loving, isn't it? Consider where you are. And so today we come, we say, are we in the faith? Is there anything in me that would demonstrate otherwise? As a school teacher, there are many times when I would need a substitute to fill in for me for being sick or out on another duty. And when I would leave, I would give that substitute teacher my authority in that classroom. And the students knew before I left that if they did not submit to the authority of that substitute, did not do their homework willingly and their work in the studies, the teacher, the substitute teacher would write their names down and they would have to deal with my authority when I got back the next day. Now, first couple times, they may not have taken me very seriously. They learned very quickly. I did come back one day, and they had to deal with the severe consequences, and they didn't like it. In a very similar fashion, God gave the church pastors, elders, he gave the church in Corinth, the apostle Paul, to give a final warning saying, you know what, here is the authority that God has given to me right now. This is my warning. But it's not just a warning about the day that I come to visit you. There's another day coming. There's another day coming when the master will appear. And you will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You will all be tried as to what you have done in the body. Charles Spurgeon says that this passage is so important. He says because it's a matter of of utmost importance that we consider these things. Because if you make a mistake, you can never rectify it except in this life. Because many have been mistaken about where they are in the faith. Because one day it will be God examining you. Because if you are in doubt now, the best way to get rid of your doubts and fears is by self-examination, confrontation, confession, and walking in repentance. Many times when I've dealt with people who have struggled to know whether or not they are in the faith, and you start talking with them, you begin to understand very quickly there is some sin that they're struggling with. It's exactly what the Scripture teaches, isn't it? There is the objective assurance of what God's Word says is true, but there is a subjective assurance that is borne out in my life. If I don't see the fact that the gospel is making a difference in my life today, there's going to be doubts. It's going to lead to despair. It's going to lead to depression. Paul lovingly gives them this warning. And in verses 5 to 7, we get to the thrust of this. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Two parts. Examine. Evaluate yourself. What is authentic here? Do you have the evidence? This is the second part. The testing. The proof is in the pudding. Faith is followed by works. Objective assurance is built upon biblical facts. Those who confess their sins will receive forgiveness. But subjective assurance is built upon the witness of a transformed life. But those who confess their sins will be forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. Consider the folks in the day of Noah in the ark. The men around Noah could have looked at the ark and said, yes, this is a strong structure. You made good wood. It's designed well. I think it will will float. 
I think it'll be able to handle whatever it comes. But then they never get in. Those who truly had faith in the ark did what? They went into the ark and were saved by it. It was being in the ark that saved men from the day of the floods. And likewise, in our lives, it's not just believing the facts. It's not just being able to quote Scripture. Does it make a difference in your life? Does it, does it flesh out in what you say and what you do and what your passions are? This is Paul's thrust here. Rather than examining my apostleship, examine yourselves, for in your criticisms of me, your life is not evidencing new life in Christ. And that is a much more important matter. So Paul prayed for them, even the ones that were attacking him. Even the ones that were challenging his authority. He said, I pray that you do no wrong. I pray that you are in the faith, that you will repent. So examine and prove yourselves in Christ, or else when I get there, we'll examine and we'll discipline you when I arrive. Now before we move on to Paul's final counsel, I want to pause and have you ask yourself a question. How many of you today would say that you're a Christian? Is it true? How do you know? Do you have any doubts? What are the source of those doubts? These are important questions to answer, aren't they? And each one of you, if you cannot answer these things, that yes, I know I'm a Christian because I see the power of the gospel in my life day in and day out, that when sin is pointed out to me, I both, maybe I don't enjoy it, but I, I want it so that I can change because I love God's holiness in me and I want to change. And I see the power of the Spirit. I have a love for God's Word and a love for God's people and a love for evangelism. But if you can't say those things, it's a very important question to answer. Proverbs 21, 22 says, A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. This is what Paul was doing. Paul's goal was for their qualification, not their disqualification. So he was willing to scale the walls of their kingdoms and the things in which they found their hope and trust and to tear them down. To attack their false foundations that they might, re they might find the real foundation, the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting, in Matthew 7, as Christ was summarizing and, and uh, closing his Sermon on the Mount, he has the, the parable of the wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And I often ask people as I teach, this, teach through this passage, I say, what was the foundation? And a lot of times people say, well, is this person had his life built upon Christ and this one didn't. But if you go back and look at the text, the text is very clear. Christ was very clear. The difference in the foundation was not simply the fact that someone believed in Christ, but as the difference was someone who not only believed God's Word, but then also lived according to God's Word. This is a person whose life was built upon the rock. And Paul was willing to tear down the foundations of those in the church in Corinth who, who were saying, yes, I am a child of God, but we're not reflecting in Elijah's Beware, beware, examine yourselves, test to see if you're truly in the faith. But he follows this final warning with final counsel. He didn't leave them in the dark as to what kind of evidences they should experience in their life. 
He said, this is what it will look like. Look at verses 11 through 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The Corinthians appeared quite confident of their faith being in Christ, even to the point of questioning Paul's apostolic claims. But Paul asked these questions to reawaken them, to consider their own lives, to consider whether or not this fruit is in their life. And it's interesting, at the end of this section of severe warning of his authority, his first admonition, his first counsel is what? Rejoice! <laughs> right? Now, some will go back and forth saying, well, this could actually be translated farewell. But consider this passage for a minute from Hebrews chapter 12. In fact, this, this is at the end of a, a big series of section of his criticism and stern warning to the church in Corinth, chapters 10 through 13. But consider Hebrews 12, 4 through 11. Verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so I come back to Paul. What's our first admonition? Rejoice. You don't like the criticism. You don't like me pointing out your faults, your failures, your challenging you. But rejoice because this is what brings you to sanctification. Think about it. Who is the better parent? The parent who sees a child who's getting ready to run off a cliff or jump off a high dive when they know, know how, do not know how to swim, says, ah, oh, I don't want to inhibit that child from doing what they want to do. Or the parent that comes along and says, no, you can't do that. That is harmful for you. And you put restrictions in your life. Who's the better parent, right? The one who disciplines, the one who puts restrictions, the one that calls to the truth the fact that they can't swim because they love them. And so in this section of Paul's warning and Paul's instructions and admonition, we find this is great reason for rejoicing. Because in it, if you truly are a Christian, you will rejoice when people point out the sin in your life. You will walk in the light because you have a love for God and a love for His holiness. You have a delight in the ways of the Lord. It's interesting, in this whole section from chapters 10 to 13, the term brother kind of drops out of the picture. But in here, in verse 11, he brings it back in. Finally, brothers, I'm talking to those who are in the faith, those who are truly Christians. You should rejoice in this challenge and in this warning. 
that you continue walking in repentance and reflect the image of Jesus Christ because it strengthens you. Secondly, he says, aim for restoration. The first counsel was a love for God and a love for God's holiness. The second admonition in counsel is a love for God's word. The same word for equipped is seen in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Restoration in verse 11 literally means to be equipped, complete, made complete, able and qualified to do what God has called you to do. Paul says, as a true Christian, you will have a love for God's holiness. You will rejoice when sin is pointed out in your life. Secondly, you'll have a love for God's word. You'll have a love for being equipped by God to do what God has called you to do. And then the third counsel, that you would comfort one another. A love for God, a delight in God's word, and now a love for one another. Romans 12, 15, he writes, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. That you would so put yourself in the shoes of your brothers and sisters in Christ, that when they are going through a difficult time, that you are moved to sorrow with them. That when someone in the faith who is rejoicing over something in their life, you don't sit there and say, boy, I wish that would happen to me sometime. No, you jump in and you say, I'm rejoicing with you, even if I'm hurting. And so a love for God, a love and delight for God's word, a love for the believers. Does this sound something familiar from the Old Testament? Does this sound like something what Christ said about a summary of the whole law? You can summarize with a love for the Lord your God and a love for your neighbor. Paul says those who are truly in the faith. Brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another. Oh, then you had to throw this one in. This is a little more difficult, right? Agree with one another. Wow, right? You don't have to go very far to find struggles with this. Your own home, right? Husband and wife. Agreeing with one another. What is entailed in this? It's a focus on in focusing on being in, in unity. How are you able to put two different people in the same room from two different backgrounds, two different, different scenarios, upbringings, and have them be like-minded? Because there has to be humility. Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but rather be humble and consider others as more significant. Prefer others. Romans 12, 16, do not be haughty. Never be wise in your own sight. You know, as a leader, this is something I struggle with. To be a strong leader, you have to know where you're going, right? You got to be sure, this is the way we need to go. Let's go this direction. But God has called me to walk in humility. To lead in such a way that I prefer my brothers. That I lead my home, not as a domineering father and husband, but as one who loves his family as Christ loved the church. 
and prefers my wife over myself. Bless those who persecute you. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These are the marks of a true Christian. This is how the gospel fleshes out in your life. A love for God, a love for God's word, a love for the brothers, a love for humility and unity. And then fifth, you live at peace. I think each one gets a little more difficult. So yeah, oh yeah, I love, I love God. I come to worship every Sunday. I love to focus on His holiness and His attributes. Yes, I, I am willing to come along with someone who is weeping and, and rejoice with someone. Yes, I love to be equipped and study God's Word. And then I have to forego my ideas, my opinions. I have to pursue peace. You see, Matthew 5, Jesus says... If you are offering your gift at the altar and and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go and be reconciled. Matthew 18, we like to go there. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him your fault. But Jesus said on on both occasions, whether you are the offended one or the offender, you are responsible for pursuing peace with one another to overcome evil with good. As far as it depends upon you, Romans 12, 18 says, be at peace with all. Paul says, love God and his purity. He says, love God's word that you might be equipped. He says, love one another that you would demonstrate compassion, that you would be like-minded, that you would exercise humility, and that you would pursue peace with one another. But then he gets to this little phrase here in verse 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. In this particular verse, with greeting one another with a holy kiss, there's an emphasis on embracing those who are different among you. You see, in the culture, in the Roman culture, are two things that were reserved only for family. Calling someone brother and greeting one another with a kiss. That was not something you did with those who are outside of your family. So what's Paul saying to the church in Corinth? It doesn't matter who that believer is, what their background is, what their ethnicity is, what their upbringing is, what their status in life is. They are to be treated as part of your most intimate family and greet them with a kiss. Forget the social customs. This is a sign of mutual fellowship. How does that happen? Because in Christ, all those distinctions are erased. So, love for God, love for God's word, love for one another in multiple ways. I'll ask you a different question. I'm going to ask you, how do you know whether or not you're a true Christian? Let me ask a different question, a parallel question. How do you know if an apple tree is an apple tree? It has apples on it. How do you know the difference between a Colorado spruce and a sugar maple tree? Which, by the way... The sugar maple, is it running right now because of the heat? <laughs> How do you know the difference? By the leaves, by what's on the tree, right? How do you know if you are an authentic Christian? By the fruit. By what's on your branches. John 15, Jesus says that 
I am the vine, you are the branches. That apart from me, you can bear nothing. And this brings us to Paul's final blessing. He's given his warning. He's given his counsel. But now he says, here's where it all comes down to what's most important. It comes down to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He says, I have told you a lot of things that are wrong about the church, and I'm telling you, you're broken, you can't fix them. But there's someone who can. And that is where you're in promise. It's interesting, in the New Testament, this sounds very similar to other closings and letters, but this particular one is unique. It's unique in that it mentions both all Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I want to back you up to a verse we read earlier in the, in the chapter. Look at verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of what? Two or three witnesses. He ends the chapter with this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will go through all. You want to know if you're a true Christian? You will see the character and works of the Holy Trinity at work in you. Have you ever considered what God thinks about you? We have a hard enough time sitting down evaluating ourselves. We don't like it. We don't like someone else to evaluate us. But we should. But that's not what matters. We sang a song. A verse was read earlier. Psalm 139. One of my favorite psalms. Search me, O God. In fact, if you look at that psalm, the psalmist has gone through this kind of this, this traveling of meditating upon who God is. He's out there. He's meditating on just how, how much sovereign, how sovereign God is over everything there is. It doesn't matter where he goes in this universe. He cannot get away from God's presence. Even the dark is as light to you. And at one moment, it's almost as if he says, I, this is too much. I can't handle this. But then he considers what that means about him as an individual, that God knit him together in his mother's womb, that he was fashioned according to God's plan, that all of his days were written in God's book before there was yet one of them. And then he moves to those in the world that reject God and say, God wants you to destroy them. I hate those who hate you. And then all of a sudden at the end of the psalm, God brings him back to himself and says, whoa, wait a minute. You're so quick to judge everyone out there. Examine yourself. He says, search me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in your righteous way. Paul says to the church in Corinth, you have been way too much focused on me as an apostle and whether or not I'm a true apostle. I'm not concerned about that, but what I am concerned about, do you know if you're a true Christian? Search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. And so he says in this blessing that there is three witnesses, the Father, Son, and Spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is a summation of the gospel. Matthew 18 says that those who have received grace understand grace and are willing to extend grace to others, to forgive others. Titus 2, 11-12 says that grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Do you want to know if God's grace is at work in you? This is what happens. I deny the ungodliness I see in me. I don't pursue the passions that I used to pursue. I don't want to be like the rest of the world. Instead, I live a self-controlled life, upright and godly, in this present 
godless age. Paul says it's only by grace. Only because of what Christ has done for you. But he says, then secondly, and the love of God be with you. We love him because he first loved us. We love our brothers because he loved us. Ephesians 5 says, if God's love is in you, you will love your wife as Christ loved the church. 1 John 4 says, if God's love is in you, you will love your brother. Romans 12 says, if God's love is in you, you will love your enemy. I had a, uh, I think it was Randy Patton, a biblical counselor trainer, once said, dealing with a, a marriage and the couple was not willing to do their homework. And uh, he said, you know, God tells you to, to love your, your wife as Christ loved the church. I said, but she's, she's not the church. And he said, well, God says you need to love your brother as Christ loved his brother. He said, well, I really can't even look at her as a brother. And he said, well, Christ also said you must love your enemy. He said, well, that fits. God doesn't let us out, but that's the difference it makes. Romans 12 shows a, 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 a contrast with the world. That instead of seeking vengeance, that I would seek to do good to those who hate me. Because the love of God is in me. Do, do you see that in you? Does the world see that in you? And then the third, fellowship of the Spirit. Eyes that are open to the truth. A conscience that is awakened, that is quickened, that is sensitive to the sin in the moment. And the ability, the strength, the power to not only see the sin, but to walk away from it. Because there's new life. And God gives me the power to walk away, to have a new way of thinking that results in a new way of living. Testimony of Father, Son, and Spirit, the grace of the Lord, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit. So we've looked at Paul's final warning, his final counsel, and his final blessing. And so we come to us today, true Christians hear biblical warnings. True Christians follow biblical counsel by God's power. So does this past year give evidence that you are an authentic Christian? Can you sit down, can you think of ways right now where some of these evidences that Paul listed here are true in your life, that you're growing in these things? Secondly, is there anything in your life right now, pursuits, passions, behaviors, thinking, that are inconsistent with these things we've looked at? And today is a day of repentance. Spurgeon says, this is a solemn text that, he, that we're speaking through. We cannot preach too impressively or too frequently meditate. The Corinthians were the critics of the apostles' age. They took to themselves great credit for skill in learning and in language, as most men do who are wise in their own esteem. They made a wrong use of their wisdom and learning. They began to criticize the apostle Paul. But since there is in all our hearts a great backwardness to self-examination, I shall exhort myself and all of you to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. Why? Kent Hughes, in his commentary entitled Power and Weakness, says, Today the warning stands over the church, and especially those who have transmitted the present cultural values into the church. 
so that church is little more than a Christianized version of modern culture. The warning stands where leadership is built on the cult of personality. Have you grown sick of that? The warning looms where worship is showtime, where preaching is entertainment, where God's word is muzzled and the pulpit panders to itching ears. The warning echoes, we are the focus of worship, our feelings, our comfort, our health, our wealth, where super apostles are preferred over Paul. Paul's warnings do have relevance. Christ does come and judge his church. Those who honestly test themselves to see if Christ is in them will enjoy the wonder of his presence. God does answer the prayers of those who pray that others, even their critics, will not do wrong, but rather right. So we have to evaluate our lives. What two to three evidences from your life this year prove you're in the faith? Beginning your public life, and your dealings with others, and your speech. Are you controlled by the indulgence of any substance? Move on to your private life. Are you living in prayerlessness? And you know, we have committed to some wonderful things here as a church. Personal Bible reading and daily prayer each day. Commit to at least two Gray Road families you don't know to be in your home. Commit to be an active part of a Sunday school class or growth group. Commit to consistently pray and share the gospel with one person. Commit to at least 75 people being at each monthly prayer meeting in 2020. Just ponder that for a moment. 12 times out of the year. Is that too hard? You see, authentic Christians live differently. Different passions. In your private life, living without Scripture's daily provision? That didn't make sense, right? How many of you would go weeks, days without food? Ever weep over sin in you or another? Have you ever walked alongside of a brother or sister in the Lord who's struggling with sin and wept with them and helped them see the victory that Christ provides? Are you constantly finding yourself in conversation with God? These are things that evidence true Christianity. So based upon that, a second question, how can you expect God's power to be at work in you today and tomorrow? Well, first, if there's no evidence of Christianity, if there's no evidence of real life, if you go through these and you say, I really could not consider I really have a love for God because I, I never talk to Him. I really can't say I have a love for His Word because I never read it. If I really can't say I have a love for holiness because I really I enjoy my sin still. I don't like my sin being pointed out. I really don't like to rejoice with people that rejoice. I, I, I really don't want to humble myself before others. Then we must say, your you're facing God's power of condemnation and judgment, His discipline. And today is the day of salvation to turn in repentance and say, God, will you save me? Will you change me? Because He has poured out His wrath on His Son, Jesus, in your place so that He might give you forgiveness and transformation and cleansing. But it's by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the power of God. But if you look at your life today and say, yeah, I see how I love God's word more today than I did last year. I have a, a greater love for the body. I desire to be with God's people and praying, and I have found myself constantly talking to God. Then we come to the end of this chapter, and what do we say? Rejoice, right? Praise the Lord. God's fruit is being born in you. This is an exciting time. 
and the doubts are put away. Not based upon the works that you have done, but because based upon the work that Christ is working out in you. And so we say, continue in these things. Don't fall into the trap of modern American Christianity. We're working for some powerful experience, some great program, some wonderful preacher or performer. Rather, constantly examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. Get your eyes where it belongs. In closing, I'd like to close with a prayer, a Puritan prayer out of the book of the Valley of Vision. A prayer that's entitled, A Disciple's Renewal. As we consider how God needs to renew us this year. Let's close in prayer. Oh, my Savior, help me. I am so slow to learn, so prone to forget, so weak to climb. I'm in the foothills when I should be on the heights. I am pained by a graceless heart, prayerless days, my poverty of love, my sloth in the heavenly race, my solid conscience, my wasted hours, my unspent opportunities. I am blind while the light shines around me. Take the scales from my eyes. Grind to dust the evil heart of unbelief. Make it my chiefest joy to study thee, to meditate on thee, to gaze on thee, to sit like Mary at your feet, to lean like John on your breast, appeal like Peter to your love, and count like Paul all things as rubbish. Give me increase in progress in grace so that there may be more decision in my character, more vigor in my purposes, more elevation in my life, more fervor in my devotion, more constancy in my zeal. As I have a position in the world, keep me from making the world my position. May I never seek in the creature what can be found only in you, the Creator. Let not faith cease from seeking you until it vanishes into sight. Ride forth in me, thou King of kings and Lord of lords, that I may live victoriously and in victory attain my end. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so in parting, I say, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.